1: ought to be a fun-fest today. Good morning everybody, this is Bob Salter. Welcome to our program. Hopefully you are well, not too wet. Aye, aye, aye. Could it rain anymore? Listen, after the experience of the last time that the guests were here today... The experience that I had that morning, today was a piece of cake. Smooth sailing. Oh, wow. Well, on our program today, I'm very pleased to say we have joining us in studio, and we had quite a lively chat last time we had guests in from Igea Brain and Spine. We'll find out, uh, for those of you who don't know, a little bit about IGEA Brain and Spine in the course of our discussion. Our guests are with us for both hours of our program, and yes, we are on until 8 this morning. Uh, In studio with us, um, two doctors uh, from IGEA. We're going to be talking to a large extent today. Our discussion is going to be focused on the area of concussions, and I know any time I mention that term that gets people's response, and I'm anticipating that this could be a very interesting discussion uh, that we have here on our program. In studio um, to my left this morning is uh, Dr. Adam Lipson. He is a, a neurosurgeon. His specialty is in the brain and the spine. It's nice to see you again. It's great to be back. And welcome back. Uh, and over to my right uh, this Sunday morning is a gentleman who had... Quite the adventure as well, the last time coming here. But he came in today with a smile on his face, met him in the hallway, and he was grinning, talking about his a piece of cake coming here uh, today. Because last time he came in, he had a flat tire on the way here, as did I. Uh, that was a morning I just want to forget, <laughs> literally. But we did have a good discussion then. Uh, in studio with us is Dr. Arun Rajaram. Uh, he is an orthopedic uh, surgeon and he's got a lot to share with us as well. It's nice to see you again. Thanks, Bob. Thanks
2: for having us back.
1: Let's do a little bit of background at the beginning because I know this is going to be a shocker to the two of you, but there are people who are listening to our discussion today who may not know what IGO brain and spine is all about. How do you explain it?
3: I'll give a start. This is Adam Lipson. So, It started as a group of neurosurgeons. Uh, We had been very uh, active in New Jersey for years, and now we spread over to Manhattan as well, and basically it became a group of neurosurgeons, there are now four of us soon to be five or six in the next year. Uh, We saw a chance to really meet the needs of all of our patients by broadening our scope of practice. And so now there's a orthopedic sports branch, there's neurology, and there's soon-to-be neuropsychology. And, and so the idea really is to provide a service for our patients so that you can cover the entire spectrum of neuromusculoskeletal injuries, so from head to toe, being able to meet the needs.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. You've intrigued me by something you just said. You said soon-to-be neuropsychology. Yes. What an interesting area.
3: Absolutely. And I think that plays very much into what we're talking about today with concussions, because the reality is there are many approaches to dealing with brain injuries. I'm the most extreme as a brain surgeon. Mm-hmm. I'll deal with making holes in your head and taking out blood and dealing with very, very severe end of the spectrum of that disease. But the reality is most concussions don't have a lot of structural injury. And you know neurologists have a perspective, neuropsychologists have a perspective. But I think it really is focused on that cognitive behavioral side of, of what these injuries and in this disease causes in the brain. And really, the neuropsychologists give a lot of the best insight and some of the best treatment strategies.
1: Okay. This term, concussion, it's used a lot. Some of the people listening to us are very familiar with this because they themselves have been through it. But I always like to take things as simply as possible. What exactly is a Concussion?
3: great question. So I think one of the most important things is to just define it at its most basic element. And really a concussion is any alteration of consciousness after uh, a trauma. So even if, say, you bump your head against the wall, if you feel dazed for a little bit, uh, that would constitute a concussion. You don't have to have a blackout, uh, but it's just an alteration of consciousness. Uh, that, that meets our definition. And, and a lot of times the nature of the injury not everyone is aware of that you know either the intensity of the if they're in a sport the intensity of the game even just the nature of uh you know i blinked my eyes and it was a couple seconds later that by definition is a concussion whether you have pain whether you've blacked out or whether you're just you know a little off arun mm-hmm. any thoughts
2: yeah little you know going to some of the things we initially asked people who have had a concussion during a game, for example. Um, we were talking about this this morning. Let's take it even down to the high school level. So, you know, we take care of a lot of high school football kids in our area. Mm-hmm. And when a, when someone has a moment where they could have sustained some head trauma, when they come to the sideline, the first, one of the basic questions uh, that we even ask, you know, situational questions. So what quarter are we in? You know, what's the score? How, how much time's left? You know, what day of the week is it? You know, little, simple questions like that. When you do have a head trauma or some injury that stuns your brain at that moment, uh, they're not so simple. So now we've gotten more sophisticated and other things we worry about and look for, but we start with just simple questions like that just to gauge, um, could this person have even had some sort of injury that gave them that shock right there to their brain at that moment?
1: Okay, so you're asking those questions. And you know, some of us have had that experience of having those questions asked and in- Many times our response is, wait a minute, I, of course I know what day it is, and you know, I know what quarter it is, that sort of thing. But if somebody answers a couple of the questions off, mm-hmm. okay, or doesn't know the answer to them,
2: what kind of message is that sending to you? I mean, that's a red flag immediately. And we've become so much more aware and um, conservative when it comes to management of potential concussions, potential head injuries. So any concern that's why for example going back to the high school example now we don't even think twice. That that athlete, unfortunately, is done for the day. I mean, they're not going back in the game. If there is any moment that we think they could have potentially had a concussion, they're not going back in the game. As opposed to years ago, those same questions were asked, and if they had memorized the answer of what day it is, you know, what their um, mom's favorite color is, and what quarter it is, they were going back into the game kind of thing. So that's changed. The paradigm has completely shifted where we're much more sensitive to that, where if there's even the slightest inkling, they're done, and then we got to do further testing after.
1: Okay, now the other <laughs> aspect of this is, why exactly is that, that they're done, okay, from a medical standpoint? What are we talking about has actually taken place?
3: So so a few a few considerations, and, and I think a lot of the difficulty on this is, you know, these injuries, when you look at, at the cellular level, what happens with the concussion, it, you know, generally, it's a disruption of the membranes of the cells. There's a release of chemical mediators that you know that essentially stun the brain. Uh, is nothing where there's no diagnosis where we can just scan someone and image them and say, "Well, you have a concussion," because mm-hmm. most of the time, by definition, this is a non-structural injury. Uh, you know, it's usually due to rotational forces. It's not like you. Uh, I mean, you can be struck in the body and just the rotation of the brain inside the skull can cause a concussion, even Mm. if you're not struck in the head. So it's quite difficult to get our hands around what is a concussion and what to do about it. At the professional level, there's always a desire of the athlete to stay focused in the game. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they're going to shake this off and Mm -hmm. get back to play. And that's been going on for years. And, And... I don't think, you know, obviously we shouldn't be treating our high school athletes the way we treat our professional athletes. And there are different considerations when someone's feeding their family, making a living off what they're doing. But at the end of the day, I think your question was, well, we need to kind of get our handle on first defining, is this concussion? And then secondarily, being able to just make sure we rest and we don't subject the athlete to further harm by allowing them to play because in the game, they're not going to make the best judgments to protect themselves. They're focused on on being as competitive as possible. So that's where we're involved as physicians. Right. Uh, so normally, if, if if there's evidence of someone being stunned or you see a hit that's high acceleration, someone's slow to get up, you might take them through what's called a concussion protocol. That's always evolving. There are many different tests. The best has been impact at University of Pittsburgh, but I think... Pittsburgh's really been at the forefront of a lot of this But generally, you know, I think we saw this in the Super Bowl. There was a player who did have a concussion Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or suspected concussion Mm -hmm. one was taken out of the game. I think one was taken and just evaluated uh, You know for further testing to make sure they were okay that the brain was functioning well if there's evidence of ongoing cognitive dysfunction they're out and you're going to keep testing until the brain is getting back to regular function On those neuropsychologic testing so they're Mm gonna test things like verbal memory attention calculation all the things and that's where that's really the realm of neuropsychologists to do all this testing but that testing is a little bit more sophisticated and takes more time what we're doing on the field is going to be very cursory just making sure that the brains generally functioning if the brain brain is generally functioning there's no headache there's no documented loss of consciousness uh, for you know uh, greater than 10 seconds Oftentimes, at a professional level, they may consider letting them play again,
2: and yeah. that's why there's so many eyes on, you know, the athletes during. I mean, the NFL has become the perfect example as far as monitoring, you know, of concussions. Right. So, I mean, literally, when when I was in when Houston working with the Texans, we, we were just basically. One of about I was one of about twelve medical uh, you know staff on the on the sideline you know there's about there were four of us orthopedic surgeons there were two neurosurgeons there were anesthesiologists there were internal medicine doctors there were no, twelve literally literally there that's that's how many um, medical staff um, pers- team personnel are involved to look at the athlete from every aspect they could need including a team dentist there there were t- there were players that broke broke teeth during a game what do you do you know so we we had a we had a team dentist uh, as well literally anything you can imagine that could get hurt in the in the course of an nfl game um they were involved to help out just in case um so you know and then you do a lot of uh Emergency preparedness. We did all the, these drills, head and neck injury drills, where basically you simulate a player that has a spinal cord injury that you know, is at risk of paralysis. What do you do in that moment? You know, we practice taking the face masks off, practice taking the um, part, parts of the equipment open up without actually moving the head and neck. And, you know, you, you prepare it's like fire drills, essentially. So those are all the things that you're doing along the way to make sure it goes seamlessly when the need is there.
1: Okay, I want to follow on that. There's a lot of different things to go into. We have really just started our discussion here with our guests in studio from IGA Brain and Spine. More as we continue this Sunday morning. If you want to join us in um, our discussion, our guests are here for both hours of our program this morning. You certainly can at 877-337-6666. I know a lot of people have had the experience of um, having had concussions. Sometimes we have some interesting questions along Those lines as well. Our guests are from IGEA, Brain and Spine, and they are in studio with us. We had an interesting discussion with them at the beginning of this year on a number of uh, topics as well. Had some pretty good input from some of the folks listening to us. And my hope today is that uh, we could have a very good discussion surrounding some of these areas because I've already learned some things in the first segment of our discussion. In studio with us, Dr. Adam Lipson and uh, Dr. Arun Rajaram, uh, they are sharing information with us. Now, there's so many different areas where, that have been mentioned here. And, you know, we were talking off the air about the way that this is developing, all right, in terms of concussion protocol, things like that. I mean, even just that term, okay, because as you were talking earlier, Adam, a thought was running through my head of, okay, let's go way back in time. And talk about how it used to be in sports that you'd hear this term of somebody, quote, got their bell rung, okay? And maybe the person would be out for a play or two. Um, This is a different world now in terms of how this is handled. Absolutely. So
3: I think the issues of concussion and The long-term effects was first – people were first made aware by that actually in the 1920s with uh, boxing and specifically punch-drunk syndrome. Mm -hmm. It is actually kind of the earliest manifestation of what people talk about now as chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE. And so actually it was a pathologist at Newark um, back in the 20s who who looked at this and looked at the brains of – Uh, boxers who uh, had chronic dementia Parkinson's Uh, we know a lot of boxers from the 60s 70s even experienced that Muhammad Ali And, and what was very clear was that there was the risk of developing these chronic syndromes chronic dementia from chronic concussions really went up with the number of rounds so if you had a lot of knockdowns in a, in, a, in a long fight, that that was worse than having a one- or two-round fight where you were knocked out a single time. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that was really the earliest evidence of what we're seeing now, and and everything's evolved. There's more awareness, and I think there's a lot more conversation, discussion, thanks to social media, mm-hmm. Twitter feeds. Everyone is able to hop on board and have real discussions about this. And I think it's appropriate. You know, I, I think this is a real issue. I think that's more relevant right now for a couple of reasons. And I'd mentioned, you know, really the, the pioneers in this whole field of concussion have been the NFL and has been the military for different reasons. The military, because of all of the protective armor that they experienced and in, in the fact that you had in Gulf War I'm sorry in Iraq you had a lot of IEDs, there were a lot of explosions and the protective armor has been so good that it protects a lot of injuries, but does not protect the head from those types of non-penetrating concussive injuries. So we're, we're seeing a lot more post-concussive issues in the military. Everyone's recognized that's a problem. They're able to protect a life, but they're not able to perfectly protect the brain during these types of traumas. Related but very different is in the NFL, where I think what's happened is you have... Players They're much bigger, faster, stronger. And I think we see this particularly at the high school level where you can have a, a 6'4", 240-pound athlete who's fast in high school. That's something you didn't see 20, 25 years ago. Right. 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 Yet they don't have necessarily the tackling technique. They may not have the next strength to protect themselves the way a professional player. So you have someone who's flying at high speeds obviously wreaking havoc to other people and themselves, a very (laughs) capable athlete, but they're not protecting themselves in the same way. And so we're developing much more of a consciousness and awareness of this issue right now.
1: And when we talk about the way in which the military has addressed this, I mean, I'm curious about this because you also alluded to something earlier when you said um, some of the leading research and development in this area is coming from, was it University of Pittsburgh? Is that where it's? Uh University of Pittsburgh has traditionally been a powerhouse
3: mm-hmm. in concussion and sports research. Uh, the chronic traumatic encephalopathy direction has really come out of the um, neuropathology department at Boston University. They started a center, so you'll see a lot of the autopsies coming out at BU. Uh, and there are a variety of high-end high end sports medicine programs. Houston is mm-hmm. is very prominent in this. Uh, that, that's where you're seeing a lot of the innovative research and, and people really devoting their professional lives to studying and getting their hands around these
1: uh, these issues. Now to go back to this idea of exactly what happens when there's suspicion of concussion. How long a period of time is involved with
2: an assessment? So it depends on probably, number one, the type of hit, um, what the player initially manifests uh, when they first are on the ground or when they first get up. Sometimes it, it can be, you know, if they if it looked like a bad hit, but then, you know, okay, quickly quickly got back up, quickly had, uh, you know, there was no disruption in, in the process at all. Mm-hmm. Um, then, you know, maybe not the whole crew isn't running on the field to grab that athlete and take him out of the game. Um, but then on the flip side... Like we were talking earlier, if someone is slow to get up, and if someone is potentially um, we're concerned about it, then. Either you may have an injury timeout, or um, if it's a position player other than the quarterback, they're coming out to sub or something like that. You know, when they come off to the um, sideline, then we're going to have basically a good talk with them and try and figure out, okay, you know, what happened, what's bothering you. You know, we saw you're a little slow to get up, so it it could be as quick as that, or it could be. I mean, you've seen nowadays this season for especially they really are using that that sideline tent a lot. So you see, you know, that big blue tent pop up. Mm. That's you know, relatively new. I, I. Ironically enough, um, previously, we would just do the exams right on a table, right on, you know, f- in the open, essentially. So now it's nice that they get a little more privacy, relatively speaking, uh, around 75,000 people. Um, so, so if if you need to do more of an evaluation, that's where we go into the medical tent and uh, really talk to them. And um if if even go back into the locker room so it, it can be from a matter of you know simple two or two or three questions for maybe 30 seconds or it could be you know a, a longer process that we got to actually go into the locker room um, and evaluate them further so it just depends on what they're manifesting the type of injury and and what we're worried about
1: what's that like i mean if you got 75,000 people around mm-hmm. you and you're trying to do basically do an assessment on on the field sure, on a sure. table.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I mean every and the other thing is what I will always uh you know always always had a lot of admiration for the league and that's part of why I wanted to have that opportunity to work in the league and help and be involved in that capacity. Everything happens so fast of course, and yeah. there's so much intensity. You know, like on first down they're already planning on third down, second down, fourth down. On third down the special teams units are already right behind you. You know, it's it's amazing <laughs> how much goes on all at once and talk about the brain processing speed i mean and the these plays right these plays have gotten longer and longer you listen to the quarterbacks actually spurt them out they're paragraphs long now some of these names of plays (laughs) so the amount of things that the guys are processing at such a fast speed to execute the way they execute and is is incredible um so that same intensity when then you have the obviously the background noise of the of the crowd Mm -hmm. and music and everything um which goes back to what we talked about last month with music and surgery. You know, are in some in a in a parallel universe. We kind of operate in that same way. We're you know we are executing our our uh, job and our our surgeries and our worlds with all this uh, basically background noise, if you will. You know what I mean. So it's one of those things that uh, that's what always kind of made me think about that parallel. But you're you're right. I mean, you you're focused. It's I always I would always say that. People would ask me, oh, you know, how does it feel being on the on the sideline dur- during a game in that capacity? You almost need three eyes because I always – that's what I would say. I feel like I have one eye on the game. I have one eye on, on our head trainer because the head trainer is basically involved in every little thing that's going on. Um, and then – one basically another eye on on my boss who was our head team physician kind of all right who's you know who is he worried about who are we going because everyone's on headsets you know we have multiple positions so if if the quarterback's down and he's coming to the sideline and then the next play the running back goes down the first the first doc is still involved with the quarterback so basically the next man up is watching the field and you know so there's there's a lot of uh, organization that's going on and and you know harmoniously kind of functioning in that realm so you really Believe it or not, you almost don't even notice the background noise in many ways. So, yes, everyone's screaming and everyone's uh, cheering and there's a lot of things going on. But when you're in that zone and you're executing, you don't even notice it. So for, to get to your question about when that player comes in and you're in the tent and there's 75,000 people, in the weirdest way, you don't even hear it. The, at that moment, it's just you and your player and you and your um, your team there trying to figure out, OK, what's wrong right now? What do I have to worry about that I may have to potentially take him out of the game and maybe get further testing? And what can I say? Okay, you know it's probably just a a bruise, or probably just a uh, you know a a little tweak, and we can ice it, we can wrap it, um, and get you back in the game. Um, So I would—it was—it's one of those things that you're you're in as much of the zone as as the players are. um, So you don't even notice a lot of that that background noise uh, in in many ways. What is the great danger, if I can phrase it that way,
1: associated with multiple? Incidents of concussion?
3: So there, it's not always predictable. The concern is number one, post concussive syndrome, which can affect people 10 to 20% of the time after concussion. It goes up with repeated concussions, and that can be chronic headaches, it can be uh, a lot of emotional ability. They're quick to cry, they're quick to get angry, mm-hmm. uh, some disruption in short term memory. Uh, that's you know people just say I, I feel like I'm in a fog mm-hmm. and I'm not able to focus and, and that can last for some time normally it lasts four to six weeks if that individual has it and the concern is with repeated concussions that you're <clears throat> that you're at higher risk of those post concussive syndromes more seriously in the high school athletes under eighteen there are concerns <clears throat> for increased risk of brain trauma and brain bleeds, so in something called second hit syndrome. So we see this, unfortunately, maybe once a year nationally. Uh, it's maybe two or three times a year. You'll have a, a high school football player typically, although it could be other sports, who has a hit, has a concussion, <clears throat> shakes it off, and maybe a week later plays, has a second hit, and develops a brain injury and, mm-hmm. and can actually be fatal. And I've seen one of those in Washington. They're, they're devastating when they happen, but that's obviously something that that is something that we obviously pay a lot of attention to and need to be maximally uh, conservative with, particularly in a high school athlete that's not making right. a living off of this. So, And that probably has something to do with uh, an adolescent's ability to... Uh, of the brain to regulate blood flow, that probably a concussion disrupts the cerebral autoregulation that maintains constant blood flow in the brain, and that a second hit somehow disrupts that and you get uh, too much blood flow to the brain that's dysregulated. Uh, Long term, obviously, the biggest concern is, as well as of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE. And we've seen high-profile issues with that, Mm -hmm. Junior Seau, uh a number of NFL players. Mm-hmm. There's no scan that can predict that. That there's no blood test or biomarker. The only way you can figure that out is that autopsy. Um, you know, that and and the issue with the different stages that they've proposed. And all of this at this point is still in development. This incomplete information. But the idea is with the early stages that you may get emotionally labile, you may have uh, be prone to violence, uh, that you may um, uh, have issues with, again, with attention, emotional ability, uh, and later stage, more dementia. You know, there, there's some tie to suicide, but that none of this has worked out. And, and it's it's gone to the extreme that there was an NHL player, I think, who had thought he had chronic traumatic encephalopathy, killed himself. And when they did the... Uh, autopsy was shown actually of a normal brain. It just was untreated Mm. depression. Mm. So Mm. so there are a lot of issues here. And obviously having better research, better awareness and better conversation about this is important. So a lot of the concussion protocols are really addressed at trying to prevent further issues with um the chronic effects of brain injury, which I think are legitimately a Mm. real threat to the future of football. You know, as is currently played, you know, we, we love watching the big hits, mm-hmm. but, you know, at the end of the day, I think the awareness of the chronic effects on those players, you know, we're, we're, this sport is going to have to constantly evolve to protect its future.
1: Hmm. Sure. Interesting discussion we're having. We're talking about this uh, topic of concussion. Uh, this portion of our program, our guests are from IGEA Brain and Spine. we give you uh, some contact information for IGEA Brain and Spine as well as we continue on our program this Sunday morning. Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. We're in a discussion talking about um, this topic of concussion, this uh, portion of our program with our guests from IGEA Brain and Spine. You want to join us in our discussion? It's real simple. WFAN's toll-free line, 877-337-6666. It's brought to you by Mohegan Sun. Unlimited possibilities await you at Mohegan Sun. Plan your stay at mohegansun.com. And I'll tell you what, let's start with a phone call here. Uh, Going to um, first to Rob in Lake Success. Rob, thanks for holding on. Welcome.
4: welcome Thank you very very much, Bob. Thank you, doctors, for coming back. I I was a gentleman uh, who called you on the cochlear implant last time, and um, you know some good information uh, just a a question i want to follow up on that but then i want to talk about uh injuries itself uh with my with my actual implant i remember waking after the uh emergency coming out of the um uh, OR, uh, in the recovery room because they actually drilled into the mastoid bone it was that kind of a doctor was it actually a a, a, a surgically induced concussion because the actual drilling going on because i did have a bit of nausea for a number of hours or was that just the anesthesia that's my first question can you please respond uh-huh. to that
3: yeah, I'll start. That that was just the anesthesia. Okay, um, all right. Yeah, there's no traumatic injury, we hope. Can't, play, can't
4: blame the
2: neurosurgeon on that. No no, 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 no,
4: no. Obviously, the, the
3: procedure had to be done, and, and you're not too far
4: from the brain when they go down to the mastoid bone or cochlea, but I was just wondering if that was an actual surgically induced uh, potential minor concussion. All right, as far as... What I remember in medical school and learning about this over the years, I always thought of con- a concussion as a, as a uh, brain kind of a bruise, where the any type of with the fluid in, in the skull movement where the brain can actually butt up against it. If it if is it, is that extreme, but what do we do? And I think you kind of touched on it earlier with the kids and and, and helmets. And I'm talking about, like, Lindros lost his career from multiple injuries playing ice hockey, slammed into the boards, and I know it's cumulative. Now, is it a lifetime cumulative situation where, let's say, a kid gets a concussion at 16 in high school, and then he gets one again at 18 in college, or or as a freshman and a senior, and then they get to play even college ball, and it continues Is it cumulative at that level, or does it have to be very short-term, and does it heal? Once it heals, it heals, and it's kind of done. And the second question, and I'll let you answer after this, with the helmets that we have, any type of helmet, I don't really see really solving the problem because any, you know, it doesn't really, when a helmet hits on a helmet, there's still constant micro trauma or bruising going on, every single play at different levels and soccer i'll just throw this out as well guys there are the no helmets and a ball coming in at, at 30 40 miles an hour and the head snapping we talk about soccer being a harmless sport i would think heading almost at every high impact head there's got to be micro trauma we're not really even talking about soccer as a sport because there's no protection there and the ball if anybody's pick up a soccer ball, coming in at a high speed, that's got to be pretty uh, intense and jarring to the head. Thank you for the time, doctors, and thank you for this great, fabulous discussion, Bob. I'll hang up and listen now.
3: Okay, thank you for your call this morning. I'll start with this, and Arun will have a lot to say on a lot of those topics (laughs) already. So (coughs) you bring up (coughs) a lot of great points. (coughs) Excuse me. So I think the first issue is... You do not need a specific brain injury to cause a concussion. It is a cumulative thing. Generally, when you heal from a concussion, you should be all good. You should be back to normal. <clears throat> so a single concussion should not cause any permanent brain injury or damage. So if a kid has a concussion, you just wait it out till their, till their cognitive function gets back to normal. They'll be back to normal. There is the issue of accumulative effect, and I think that's really what the NFL and these concussion protocols are focused on, and and that awareness. And as I mentioned, the military and the NFL have been leaders on this, but that's come through the high schools now because obviously with kids, you know, these kids are not playing NFL ninety nine percent of the time, and and you want to make sure that you can give your kid a good athletic experience and not have any long-term issues from that there are issues in terms it isn't just football uh actually the most common areas for concussions in high school sports are for women and basketball field hockey soccer in boys it's soccer ice hockey it it doesn't really get to football until later in high school that becomes a very common issue uh some thoughts about that actually in high school level women have more concussions than men girls have more concussions than boys in early high school level the looking at that it, it, as i mentioned the head you know whether you're male or female it's the same weight but a lot has to do with the neck strength and the ability to uh cushion that head and protect that head and obviously you know you, you see in a younger female athlete they're, they're not going to have the same neck strength uh so i think that This is an issue that's universal to all sports. Uh, You know, I think that there's many things that are being done to innovate in this area. I actually have a good colleague at the University of Washington, Sam Broward. He's he's actually designed a new helmet uh, that is getting a lot of traction with new materials that really changes some of the forces transmitted to the head. At the end of the day, you can't take away the forces to the head. There are... You know, NFL has actually developed a venture capital fund to seed money for new innovation to try to reduce the concussions. So there are helmets that have um, the ability to measure forces and have uh, alerts for forces that are concerning for concussion. They've looked at things like placing rubber underneath the fields to soften the blow, say when you're playing – we're all East Coasters okay. – Playing in a November, back. December on hard ground has a higher risk of concussion. So changing the actual field. They've even looked at things like position specific helmets, that the hit that a quarterback takes is fundamentally different from a lineman or a cornerback or a receiver. That those are different hits. You know, the, mm-hmm. the high risk for the for the uh, quarterback is gonna be hitting from the back for the receivers coming across the middle, high velocity. For your linemen, it's those every, every play. It's basically every line. play is a, is a big hit. Um, Arun, maybe you want to develop that from there.
2: Sure, yeah. That's what I was, I was thinking. That We always talk, you always see the replays of the big uh, you know, sack or the receiver, unfortunately, when he came across the middle, a big hit. But the linemen, um, literally every single play, the moment the ball snapped, they've come up and the offensive and defensive linemen's butt heads immediately. Um, so those sensors, for example, if, if we can start to use data when the sensors are in the helmet that a player actually sustained a concussion. You can then see the level of force that went through that helmet and then start to set up triggers that if another player gets that same head impact, even if they didn't have a concussion, if they have no symptoms, you pull them out immediately and you really even start talking to them. And then the other technology that hopefully is going to take um, you know take further progress is that kind of crumple zone uh, principle that you can try and put into a helmet like you do in cars. Because no matter what, that impact is still going to happen so if the uh, s- microscopically or even at, you know, at a at a physical level where you can have some sort of a crumple zone in the helmet mm-hmm. that takes some of that load. So then when it actually gets to your brain, ultimately, you're going to have a little less of a, of a blow. So that's the kind of technology that we're hoping will eventually mitigate a lot of the, you know, at the end of the day, we know it's a contact sport. You can't remove the contact from the game, but you certainly can try and minimize the things that we already know can exacerbate these issues. Like actually even soccer practices. I mean we I mean I grew up playing soccer, so we would practice head balls on corner kicks all the time and not a practice will go by without trying to do some corner tr- corner kick drills with he- um, heads into the net now you talk to some high school soccer coaches they're not practicing that as often because it, it's a cumulative trauma so that has already trans um, kind of uh, transferred over into the the day-to-day uh, um, you know operations of, of soccer at the high school and even middle school level because we know if you take a hundred headballs um, and you know the majority of that's in practice try to minimize some of that head trauma so that it already is having an impact on uh, discussions and practice uh, procedures mm-hmm. in many ways.
1: Very interesting discussion on uh, this topic of concussion. Our guests are from IGEA Brain and Spine. Dr. Adam Lipson and uh, Dr. Arun Rajaram um, are in studio with us. Um, we'll get back to the folks on the phone in just a moment. One thing we have not done, what's contact information for IGEA Brain and Spine?
3: So I'll give our... Uh, we have offices in – we have, I think, six offices now in New Jersey and one office in Manhattan. Uh, the website is www.igeaneuro.com. So it's neuro and dot com. Phone number, the local phone number, I think, is 908-688-8800. I'll get the 866 number in a minute.
1: Okay. Let's go back to the phones at 877-337-6666. That's our phone number here at The Fan. And let's go next to Rafael, who's calling us from Vermont. Thanks for holding on so long. Welcome to The Fan. Good morning. Hey, how you guys doing, there? Doing well, thank you. And yourself? Okay.
5: I have a question for the doctors in general. Why nobody's saying anything about the MMA and the UFC? Myself, I stopped watching that thing because... How come nobody mentioned anything about concussion when the whole thing is based on concussion? But not a peep, not a word about these people. We worry about football, but never a word about UFC and MMA. Why? Thank you.
1: Okay, I'm uh, going to let them actually um, answer this. Uh, Adam's going to address this.
3: I'll start. That's actually an excellent point, Rafael. Uh, yes, you know th- those are. There are a couple things unique to MMA, um, which I think is relevant to the issue of concussion. So, number one, it's a relatively new sport. We're not seeing the chronic issues, you know, th- that we see, say, in NFL. I mean, we, you know, or say in boxing, for example. We've seen Muhammad Ali's. We've seen, you know, boxers over decades, seeing the long-term effects. So we don't have the same time period where we have the same understanding. Number two, there is... I actually have had discussions with other uh, neurologists and neurosurgeons about this. There is some argument that actually some of the padding itself may be uh, detrimental. So a boxer who gets into a 12-round fight with soft-padded gloves, who takes a lot of repeated hits and a lot of repeated small concussions may have much more significant long-term effects in terms of brain function and the chronic traumatic encephalopathy issues or what they call uh, uh, dementia pugilistica. It may be that with MMA, you're seeing more knockouts because the padding is less, but the rounds are shorter. Mm. There are fewer rounds and some people argue they're very quick to you know they're very quick to stop the fight the minute there's a knockout, so you know they don't they don't you don't see someone stunned going right back in, so I think it is an issue. It, it we may see this sport to be fundamentally different because I do think concussion. You know our bodies are smart. Our bodies do protect ourselves, and sometimes the protections that we build into a sport, while it, hoping to create safety may create issues. And, and I think some of the issues that we see in football are the fact that you have hard helmets and hard padding that people use as weapons, you know, they, that they're, they're using those helmets to increase the impact of a tackle. And, and it may be that less padding may be better. We, we see less long-term issues in rugby than we do in football, although we do see concussions. We're just not seeing the longer-term effects the way we do in these
2: other sports where
3: there's more protection.
2: Right. Harun. You know, and, and the other thing that makes it difficult in sports like boxing and MMA, the what, what's, you know, a fighter's goal to win that um, round or even to win the whole uh, fight is, could be a knockout. And unfortunately, by definition, a knockout is a concussion. So it's tougher to gauge, okay, you know, sure, if you look back at a boxer's career, how many knockouts they had probably may put them at a greater risk of issues down the road because, by definition, that is a concussion. So that's why it's harder to, um, in some ways, protect them as much as we would like them to because that's unfortunately part of the inherent risk in that sport. But things that we can try to do to mitigate it and you know, hopefully prevent any long-term issues are going to be helpful in the future.
1: Earlier in uh, this discussion, uh, Adam, you were talking about CTE. And one of the things that I was thinking at the time, I always think that people are listening maybe on the same wavelength that I am. And I asked you about this off the air, but I want to bring this up on the air. When you talk about this idea of there being some sort of um, biomarker or something like that, okay, is there any sort of movement toward that?
3: Yes. So one of the issues we talked about was there's no test for chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Uh, The only way that people diagnose this is an autopsy. Uh, As I said, Boston University really is at the forefront of, of this research in that neuropathology department. I know they're working very diligently and hard at trying to find a biomarker. So the idea is having a blood test or a brain scan Mm -hmm. that could actually diagnose it. And as I mentioned, there's some relevance to actually Alzheimer's where we see deposits of what we call neurofibrillary tangles, tau proteins in the neurons, Um, similar to Alzheimer's. uh, We don't have any great imaging test or biomarker for these diseases, but they're hoping to have something within a decade, you know, The challenge is we're dealing with this issue now and we have to find the best strategy and right now it's dealing with disease that we're just learning a lot more about but it's relevant to people today and we have to give our best recommendations to protect athletes today so you know hopefully within a decade we'll be able to offer a blood test but we need to navigate Mm -hmm. this now and the best is going to be neurologists and neuropsychologic testing
1: Mm -hmm. Interesting areas of discussion where we've gone in this first hour of our chat with our guests from IGEA Brain and Spine. See that first hour just flew by that like quickly. That. All right. We're going to come back. We're going to get into more discussion about concussion. We'll also touch upon uh, this topic of um, ACL. We can't let that go by, yeah. especially with the, this week. Mr. Porzingis in the uh, news, too. We'll get your thoughts on uh, that pending surgery on uh, Tuesday as we move along on our program this Sunday morning. like it's balmy outside. Temperatures in the 40s. Nice wet day too. Good morning everybody. This is Bob Solter. Long after our 8 o'clock update. It is Rick Wolf with the Sports Edge program. And after our 9 o'clock update, well this is week one. As they say it can only get better Or at least that's what we hope. Ed Randall will be by. He'll be talking baseball here on The Fan. This and every Sunday morning, straight through the baseball season. In studio with us, two guests from Igea Brain and Spine. They have been with us since we started our program at 6 this morning. We're with you until 8 this morning. Dr. Adam Lipsum and Dr. Arun Rajaram join us on our program And we've talked about concussion in Hour 1 of our program. We'll continue talk on uh, that topic. You want to join us by phone at 877-337-6666. You can uh, with questions along the lines of some of the areas that we've been talking about. We'd also be remiss if on WFAN we didn't talk about, since it's in the news, I, I hesitate to say these three letters because... I have a feeling I know what's going to happen with the phone when I do a c l and um, your reaction first of all to um, christoph Sporzingas, Sporzingas, um having ACL surgery on Tuesday, what's that like first of all?
2: Sure, yeah, so I mean first, your heart just breaks because it's no matter what it's a really tough injury. um it's become so common with athletes. Um, But it's become a really tough injury. And so we've been worried about this type of injury, honestly, for him, because you've seen other injuries. He's just, uh, Porzingis, I'm talking about now, Mm -hmm. um, has had pretty bad ankle injuries. You know, as recently as two two months ago, he uh, had a pretty bad ankle injury that literally his whole foot turned sideways. I mean, it's amazing he didn't break his ankle. But He is so tall and his ligaments and his tendons are are so flexible, you know, part of that, uh, you know, because of his height and everything that he is a little more vulnerable to ligament and tendon injuries. And unfortunately, the most devastating is the ACL. Um, So... What happens is you're, and most just like he got hurt, no one, no one hits you. It's rarely a contact injury. Most of the times, what we call a non-contact uh, twisting injury or landing injury. So you know he had just dunked the ball. He he landed on the ground, and basically when that when he hit the ground, the momentum is essentially carrying your body forward, obviously. And then if you just twist the right way, your your lower leg, your tibia, just ends up. Continuing moving forward without the rest of your body, and that ligament tears because that ligament to the ACL is basically trying to keep your leg essentially under your body. And if that momentum carries there, it or twists in the wrong way, that ligament can tear. So Unfortunately, despite all the technology we have in this, in this day and age, it still really and when it's in an adult, it doesn't really heal. We can do all kinds of different things and treatments for a lot of things in the body, but the ACL it doesn't heal um, and part of that is a blood supply issue you know when you when you get a cut on your skin, for example, you know it bleeds and eventually stops and it'll heal no problem it'll heal like gangbusters. but the problem in the inside the knee, The ligament doesn't have a good blood supply, so it can't heal. So then if something can't heal, we can't repair it. Because if we go in there and just put some stitches around it, you need some blood supply to actually help that thing heal around our stitches so that it can then, okay, be good to go in the long run. Mm -hmm. So in this case, this ligament, it has no ability to heal. So you literally have to build them a new one that's essentially the surgery. So when you hear someone having ACL surgery and Porzingis is, you know, he's having a surgery on Tuesday, you have to build that person a new one. Now, what does that mean? So you can either most commonly in your teenage athletes, your college athletes and professional athletes, and then even all of your kind of weekend warriors through your late twenties and thirties and, you know, into your forties. And even now, People are much more active. Um, We see people in their 50s having ACL surgery to maintain their activity level because it all goes down to, okay, what type of activity are you trying to continue to do? And we need to protect your knee because the problem is if your knee keeps buckling and keep giving way when you're doing things, you're at risk of arthritis down the road. So in people in their 20s, for example, so porzingis is 22, you're going to use one of your own tendons because there is an option where you can actually do – a donated, t- like like basically like an organ donor, there's, mm-hmm. there's tendon donors as well. So um, you can do a tendon donor for an ACL surgery, but usually our kind of cutoff is around age 40. Um, it's because of the incorporation of that tendon the, in the younger folks. It actually doesn't incorporate as well as we would like it to be for them to still do the activities that they want to be doing. So there's a higher chance of that tendon tearing again. And we also find studies have shown after roughly around after after age forty, you're not putting yourself in as many positions that's gonna potentially risk tearing it again. So it's all about the frequency of injury type events. So usually our recommendations are under the age forty, you're pretty much gonna use one of your own tendons um, for that surgery. Now in the professional athlete. The one that you'll see most commonly is using your own patella tendon. So basically, you take a piece of bone from your kneecap, you take part of your patella tendon, and then a part of your shin bone, and basically, you have bone on each end, and then you basically have to put that back in their knee, where then you connect the thigh bone, your femur, to your shin bone, your tibia, and then that bone on either end grows in. And that, that takes a long time to really incorporate in the beginning. But once that incorporates and once it grows grows back in, you have the lowest chance of it tearing again. And that's why you'll see the majority of the professional athletes um, are having that type of graft, that patella tendon graphs, because it has the lowest chance of tearing again. Now, timeline. That's the b- biggest right. question. Okay, you know, right. when's Chris? I was going to play again? That's the first question I get about this all the time. And unfortunately, you kind of just have to, turn your calendar to a year from now. So you're looking at basically February of 2019. Now, why why is that, right? So Adrian Peterson, we've all heard this example. He came back in nine months. He was the Superman of, of ACL kind of recovery, and he literally tore his ACL, uh, had surgery in January, and played again in September, that kind of thing. Now, was that smart... I mean, it's it was impressive. I'll put it i put it that way. You know, he he if he came back a little earlier, he was, I mean, if he came back a little too early, then his body was ready. He put himself at risk of tearing it again. Mm-hmm. Um, and and even if you do everything right, you still have a five to ten percent chance of tearing that same ACL again. And you actually have a little higher chance of tearing the other knee's ACL because you're trying to protect your your injured side with your quote unquote good side. So you actually have even higher chance of tearing the other ACL. So that's your biggest concern. And the statistics of of returning to play at a high level, especially the professional level, after tearing it twice are pretty, pretty low. So you you really want to avoid you want to avoid tearing it at all, but you want to obviously avoid tearing it again. So that's why you don't want to come back too early because of that risk of re-tear. Um, that um, that you can do if your muscles aren't ready. So the first three months, for example, so Chris is having his surgery on Tuesday. So the next three months after Tuesday are going to be spent just letting that graft incorporate into his own body. The first two months is just the bones healing on either end. So that hopefully turns back to normal bone. Then blood supply, getting into that new tendon to try and make it more functional like a ligament. So your first three months are just letting that new graft that we just made for you incorporate into your knee to function like an ACL. Then after that, the muscles have to get back to more strength and to basically balance the knee again. Believe it or not, you studies have shown that if you're 80% of your good side in regards to muscle strength that's actually considered good. So some people's quad on their injured knee never gets back to 100% of their other knee and and literally that's the majority of people running running around out there. So our goal actually if we can get to at least 80% of your good side is good. And that that takes a long time. And the problem is there's a lot of nerve endings in the middle of that ligament that helps with balance and what we call proprioception. So your kind of knee has general awareness of the rest of your body. You lose that when you tear the ACL. So getting that balance back and getting that coordination back and even just the mental confidence in your knee. That was another survey we we did with, with NFL players that the majority of NFL players felt that they didn't feel back to normal mm. until their second season back. Mm. So even though they played that... After a year, they came back to play. That whole first season back, they thought about their knee on every single play. And it wasn't until two years uh, out was when they finally stopped thinking about their knee and they felt normal again. So that that's even a longer impact from your actual surgery. Now, from there's your...
1: an interesting <coughs> challenge for coaching staff. Yeah. Okay? Yeah And dealing with somebody who's thinking about their knee in that fashion, and how do you proceed that way, too. All right. Um i tell you what we'll do is let's see if we can work in um, a call that I think sure. is along the lines of what you've been talking about here. Let's go to uh, Eric and Oceanside. Eric, good morning. Welcome to the fan. Good
6: morning, guys. How are you guys doing this morning?
1: Well, good morning. Yourself? How are you?
6: Good. Um, yeah, speaking on behalf of the uh, patella tendon repairs, um, I myself actually ruptured both 100%. Um, I did my left knee in 2009 while I was playing volleyball, and I did my right knee playing softball in 2010. And the recovery time was it, was, it was crazy. I was out for a total for my job for a total of 13 months. Yeah. And the physical therapy and the time that it takes to get yourself back to a level where you feel like you can function, you know, quote, unquote, 100% again, when it's truly not 100%, at least in my case, um, it's a very vigorous um, tendon to tear. It's very it's detrimental. And the, the mental aspect of it, when you're trying to get back to what it was you used to do, um, it's always in the back of your mind, so I can I can understand. Uh, you know, I was I was shocked um, that Victor Cruz was even trying to come back when he did his. When he went down, I was watching it. 100, percent I knew exactly what he had done, and I could see the next uh, year of his life flash in front of my eyes, just knowing what he's about to be going through, and then seeing Kristaps, you know, uh, Bozingis go down with not the same injury, but around the knee. It's it's just, it's very tough to get back to that level that you once used to be at with these injuries.
2: Absolutely, no, Eric. I mean your your injury was worse than an ACL. But the more more people we're seeing now, patella tendon injuries. That's a really tough injury to come back. The way that needs to heal and the scar tissue that develops. So you know, I'm glad you're you're able to make a, a successful recovery. And like you said, it's you still have to think about your knee and you're still cautious. I'm sure with certain things. But that your injury is actually even worse. I mean, that that's a really tough tendon because our entire ability to, to walk and push off and run and go up and down stairs and things like that, that's because of your patella tendon. That's what basically helps your quad function. So uh, it's, it is a tough injury. Definitely, definitely is a tough injury to recover from. Right. Yeah,
6: it really is. Well, I appreciate you talking on the topic. And, uh, you know, I throw my uh, good, good luck out there to all these athletes Hopefully so they can make full returns.
2: For sure. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Thank
6: you, guys.
1: Thanks for your call this morning, Eric. Uh, you want to join us in our discussion, 877-337-6666. You can weigh in on um, ACL. You can weigh in on uh, concussions, some of the areas we've uh, talked about thus far in our discussion here. Now, the procedure that's going to take place on Tuesday, time involved with that, how long a procedure
2: Depends if they have to do more work with the meniscus and things like that. Let's you know, let's assume uh, the answer is no to that. So that he just has the ACL torn by mm-hmm. itself. The procedure itself is is not not that long. We're talking maybe just a little over over an hour, you know, between an hour and two. To you have to obviously get the graft first. You right. have to you have to harvest. So actually, almost more time is spent, um, or just equal amount of time is spent getting the actual graft, and then you have to prepare it on the on the back table as we call it to essentially shape it customized for you so everyone's we're all like shoe sizes glove sizes we're all different right Um, so people come in all shapes and sizes including your tendons come in all shapes and sizes so we do surgery on the tendon on the back table to fit your knee that kind of thing um good adam you had a question yep
3: two questions one is where do you take the tendon from and two is are there any technologies that allow you to really size this to customize
2: it Uh, is there any computer aided Tools. Sure, absolutely. Great question. Cool. So in the the two most common grafts are your patella tendon graft and your hamstring graft. So um, your patella tendon graft is right in the front of your knee. You basically you feel your kneecap, and then you feel the tendon just below the kneecap. That's the patella tendon. And you're looking to take basically ten centimeters um, in width of that patella tendon. So and and of that bone. So we have we have um, essentially Bone saws, because that's that's what they are. The bone is solid. You need to actually take a small piece of it um, that they're calibrated, you know, ten millimeters in in width, so you know exactly what you're taking. Um, and we get X-rays and MRIs ahead of time to make sure that people have the appropriate amount of bone and there's no other issues for that area. Um, so you're basically taking that um, from that patella tendon to get it together. But then you need to actually make tunnels in the in the bones that you're connecting, because that's at the end of the day, the simple. Simple goal of the ACL is to connect your shin bone to your thigh bone, your tibia to your femur. So how do you do that? You actually have to drill tunnels in both of those bones and connect them on either end. And then you have to fix them in that place. So we have a lot of now absorbable technology with screws. So there's basically screws that we put in that are made of calcium and phosphate, Mm. which basically your body gradually absorbs. They're hard when they go in and then your body absorbs them and it incorporates into bone in that area to hold it in place.
3: How do you decide how much tension is enough for that individual and say it's more specific?
1: Hold that thought. Yeah. I want you to answer that. But first, we got to take a look with us on our program. Adam, you had posed a question to Arun. Would you repeat that? Because I interrupted him before he got a chance to respond to you. Sure. Absolutely. So he, was talking- talking, he was talking about
3: the uh, ACL repair. Mm-hmm. And just as a surgeon who doesn't do this type of surgery, I was curious if... Uh, well, A had asked him about the what tendons he utilized and where he harvested from the body, and B really how he customized that for that athlete or for that individual. There's so much that we do, you know everything is very personalized for in, in terms of how we approach surgery, but I think particularly for ACL, mm-hmm. you know what you're asking that to do for function, and particularly for a high level athlete. You know, for for an NBA athlete or for an NFL athlete, will you do that? Are there any tools, any computer-guided planning, anything that he can utilize that actually allows him to really customize it for that person's sport and function?
2: Right. And this discussion, you know, with our questions back and forth is, is just a reminder for our audience, that's why we're trying to customize things and be able to take care of all of our patients where we have the neurosurgical side where we can cover things from concussions. And now, you know, we have the orthopedic surgery side where we're covering the injuries like the ACLs, like the rotator cuffs. So we're trying to trying to be able to figure out, okay, what do people need and how can we help everyone? And that's why we're able to kind of team up together. So to answer your question as far as the tension of these things and customizing these things, like you said, Adam, was, as we left off at the last segment, at the end of the surgery, one of the biggest things you want to do is feel that tension and look at that tension in the knee. Because really, your knee, when you have an ACL, shouldn't really move more than uh, basically... You know, we're talking five millimeters. uh, You don't. We don't really want it to move that much. So you do things at the end um, to kind of really keep that tension, because, like we talked about, right? The primary function of that ACL is to prevent that shin bone from moving forward so beforehand you know when we're looking at the MRIs and things like that we're looking to see the bone quality in that area because our goal in that professional athlete is to give them the graft that's going to have the lowest chance of ever tearing again so that they can have a successful professional career Um, and the same thing is true when we have high school kids when we have high school kids that tear this um, we're trying to give them the graft that's going to have the lowest chance of ever tearing again so that if if they can go on to a professional career, that'd be tremendous. But we want them to have a stable knee for the rest of their life because as our research is developing now, the moment you have an ACL injury, it's kind of a concussion to the cartilage. You know, going back to our concussion theme, the cartilage in our joints, and we're talking about the knee here, it doesn't grow back. When that cartilage gets punched, which is what happens essentially when your ACL um, tears, the cartilage takes a punch because your knee essentially is almost trying to pop out of place. That area just like a stroke to the brain, unfortunately, doesn't grow back. It scars in, and that scar tissue is never normal cartilage, so you don't have that normal cushion again, so you're at a higher risk of developing arthritis later on in life because of it. Now, we were hoping if you can give someone a new ACL, that automatically would take away that risk, but unfortunately, the research has shown that just having the injury in and of itself automatically gives you an increased risk of arthritis when you're older. So what we can help with is try to give you a new ACL to give your knee stability so it doesn't buckle anymore, so it prevents further cartilage injury to at least reduce that risk of arthritis that you would have if you didn't have an ACL in there. So even though we're talking about this and the professional athletes uh, and their ability to return to play, 99% of the people um, that we are caring for and and the patients that we talk to every day... They just they just need a stable knee. I want to give them a stable knee so they can live their life and do everything they want to do from work and social and regular activities and also give them a knee that is going to be stable so they have less of a chance of developing arthritis when they're older. So that's a, that's one of the main goals of our treatments for sure.
1: Now, one of the things that Adam, you had posed uh, to Arun off here, and I, I, I want to touch upon this because was something that I had thought about couple of different times is this idea that, you know, you have uh, more and more athletes who are, shall we say, very tall, seven feet, seven, one, Mm -hmm. seven, two. I mean, this, this didn't used to be commonplace, right? Right. Right. And now it, it really is. Okay. Something's in the water. Uh, yes. I remember the first time I stood next to somebody who was seven feet tall and just thought to myself, wait a minute. I kind of now know what this is like for all those people who say, "Wait a minute, you're so tall to me." <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> um, but for somebody who's seven feet or seven one, seven two,
2: are they at increased risk for injury? Yes, and, and I know I'm probably repeating this example um, in regards to Porzingis' ankle injury a few months ago. But if you if you watch that video of of his ankle it it turns you know more than 90 degrees to the side and if any of our ankles turn sideways and almost backwards it will break it, yeah. there's just no we don't have the normal leeway um for our ankle to turn that severely and it would just the bones would just break but um being so tall and part of the soft tissue adaptation if you want to call it is Things have to be a little more flexible. Those those tendons and ligaments have to be a little more like rubber bands, where they can stretch more and then come back to basically. Since they are so tall, so taller folks end up having somewhat looser joints to a certain extent. Not everyone. It's not a it's not a blanket statement, mm-hmm. but um, I've seen many, many now um, more often than not. A lot of these folks um, in their younger age, um, especially in their teenage years, twenties, and thirties. Um, seem to have looser, basically a little more mobile joints. And the problem with that is, the perfect example is the ACL. So that knee can only move so far before something has got to give. And unfortunately, the ACL is the victim in that situation because it doesn't have as much room to give. Um, The tendons and the ligaments outside of the knee joint, they can stretch like rubber bands, but the ligaments inside the knee joint, they don't have that ability to give the way the, uh, the other guys do. So... That is what you know, potentially made him more vulnerable or more at risk for developing this injury. But you know they, they're doing a lot of things to try and protect themselves and try and prevent these injuries. So things we we're talking about, for example, is really working on core muscle strengthening. and that starts obviously at the core and the abs, and then your mm-hmm. glutes and then your quads and your hammies. So these are all things that they ha- as, as mundane as those exercises may be, They really have to incorporate that into their day-to-day regimens with workouts because that's their lifeline. I mean, those muscles are the only kind of safety net they have for the joints. So they really have to work on those muscles to maintain that quad strength to stabilize the knee with that fine line of, not trying to push through too much fatigue when they're strengthening because I mean, they're in the game, they're running up and down the court, they could run miles over the course of a game, right? So, that quad muscle is going to be exhausted at the end of that game. So, it's pretty hard the next day, next morning, potentially to squat um, and do all these exercises. And then, if you do squat or something right before a game, and you go into a game, your quad's a little fatigued then it's that catching weight too. Then that quad can't do its job to actually protect the knee. And then when you land, the knee buckles and the ACL tears. So it, it, it's, a, it's a tough balancing act. It really, really is. Um, but we need those muscles and we need that core strength. And then there's even jumping protocols. We teach high school kids, especially, um, like we talked about earlier, high school uh, and middle school, Volleyball and basketball um, female athletes have some of the highest, including uh, soccer as well, but obviously soccer is not a jumping sport. Those three sports have the highest growing rate of ACL tears. They're actually the fastest growing population right now um, and for various reasons. But part of the jumping techniques that we're teaching um, middle school and high school girls is landing as opposed to landing with a little more of a knock-kneed stance, which puts you at risk of tearing the ACL, trying to land more in line. So we're doing basically taped box jumps and showing them technique, and they're practicing this at home and with their coaches and things like that. So little things like that can reduce the risk of you tearing those ACLs just by concentrating on techniques with certain things.
1: Do they get it, the young athletes? Do they get the injury. Yeah, I mean, do they get what you're doing in terms yeah, of the no, technique? And, absolutely, and it's putting just it in
2: it's like anything else. I mean, they a lot of y'all, young athletes are working very hard to succeed in their sport. Mm-hmm. So when you when you frame this uh, to them along the lines of this is what you're going to do to be able to be a better athlete because right. you're not going to get hurt and then you're going to be able to succeed and be uh, stronger and faster and and uh, a better athlete uh, and we incorporate it into their. Pre-game warm-ups incorporated into their practice uh, routines, and um, absolutely, they're certainly receptive. It's just it's a matter of just public education, it's just a matter of you know getting that word out there to them to show them the the things that they can do. Cool. Mm-hmm. All right, let's do
1: a, a quick call here before we have to uh, pause again. Uh, Mike has joined us from East Rockaway. Mike, thanks for holding on so long. Welcome to the fan.
5: No problem, Bob. I always listen to you too. And um, Rick Wolf is on deck, and I posed this to uh, Rick Show. Um, Doc is hello. I'm sure you do wonderful work over the years. Um, uh, I played a little college baseball four decades ago, and I got my bell rung a few times. Um, I have a son who just graduated college, upstate New York, a good school. He was a wide receiver. Um, and I'll tell you, as a parent, uh, I'm not a firm believer in, you know, young kids playing football, 8, nine, ten years old, okay, because uh, concussions – BTE, um, it's a terrible thing, and uh, it happens in all sports, okay? And football especially. You could have a helmet redesigned, but especially on kickoffs, for example, you know, everyone's at full throttle, and you can't stop helmet-to-helmet contact. And and one of my um, my friends, I went to see his son play last year. He was returning kickoffs in high school. My son did that, too, uh, when he was playing high school ball. Once that, you know, that play, my heart was in my throat when a kid is going downfield and he's getting hit full throttle uh, uh, by two, three or more players. Um, guys, my point is, you know, moms and dads are very reluctant to let their kids play football. Of all the sports, football it's getting more coverage now, as it should be, because, um, you know, uh, sports is fun, but sports uh, has consequences, and uh Guys, uh, thanks for taking my call, Bob, and uh, I'll listen to your response, and uh, thanks very much.
1: Thank you for your call and your patience on the phone. Um, quick response before we take a break here. Sure. So I
3: agree. You know, I think that there there is, and, and this is what I was saying, that the NFL is very, very involved because I think they recognize this is really fundamental to the future of this sport. Right and having this discussion and having an openness and transparency about is important and particularly as we talk about our kids playing these sports where 99.9 percent are not going to play this professionally and make a living off of this and how do we keep this fun how do we keep this so that it's important to our our children's development and how do you uh keep it safe for them so that there are no long-term uh consequences i do think that further on-field understanding and recognition of concussions and prevention is important. You know, I've definitely, you know, I have a new son and people have asked me, would you be comfortable uh, letting him play football? Well, would you? <laughs> so as a neurosurgeon, yes. I think you'd have to, I, I would pay attention to what the protocols and, you know, what the the views of the coaching staff, but at the end of the day, the kids are going to do what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there, there are... You know, it, it's a fun sport to play. People love it. It's definitely something that's really fundamental. It is the number one sport in the U.S., uh, you know, certainly as in terms of TV fans. Uh, and I think that at the end of the day, it's up to the sport itself to adapt to our understanding of safety. The reality is this has always gone on in this sport. You know, in the 20s and 30s, when they weren't playing with helmets uh, you know, it was a big sport in the Ivy League. I think you had six or seven Ivy League players yeah. that tied over a two- or three-year right. period where you had, you know, FDR basically go and try to ban the sport. The sport adapts for a better understanding of the injuries that we're sustaining. I think we'll develop better protocols, better protections. You know, I know where I went to college at Dartmouth, They they now, at the college level they now have no tackle practices. Uh, that's become much more prominent where they use tackling dummies as opposed to, you know, basically making it so that, you know, creating environments where there are higher risk of concussions than practice. And so I think it's up to us to change the sport and have a, a healthy conversation about it so that parents do feel comfortable letting their kids play.
1: Okay, we're going to take right. a pause here, um, come back, we get to some more folks on the phone at 877-337-6666. Our guests from IGEA Brain and Spine are with us, and will be with us as we continue along right up until 8. Our look around the sporting world is up at 7.40, and in studio is Dave Urem to bring it to us. Well, you can't have New York without sports.
5: And you can't have sports without
3: the fan. Sports Radio, 101.9
0: FM. It's 66. W-F-A-N, New York.
1: Ooh, those jingle singers along on Sunday morning. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. After our 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program. By the way, congratulations to the program on um, 20 years... Wolf, um, revealing that uh, beginning of the show last Sunday morning. Tip of the hat to him. Ed Randall's talking baseballs along after our 9 o'clock update this Sunday morning as well. We have guests in studio from Igea Brain and Spine talking with us. And we're trying to work in some of your thoughts as well at 877-337-6666. Dr. Adam Lipsum and Dr. Arum Rajaram uh, in studio with us. And we've touched upon ACL. Uh, questions, some uh, questions surrounding, uh, concussions and try to work in a few more things too. Let's go next to a uh, bill in Manhattan who's been holding for a while. Bill, thanks for holding on so long. Welcome to the fan. Bill calling bill once calling bill twice. Bill, are you there? No, I guess bill must've dropped off. Whoops. Oh, there he is. Okay. You back bill. Are you with us? Nope. I guess not. Okay. Um. All right. Yes, he dropped off. Okay. All right. is our number here at The Fan uh, this Sunday morning. Now, this idea of um, ACL and um, knee problems, knee issues, when we're talking about the work on an ACL injury, This is commonplace to you. To the rest of us, lay people, we have no idea what this is like, okay? What kind of an area are
2: you working in? Sure. Dimension-wise? Looks, like, looks like Bill is back, uh, mm-hmm. if you want to okay. jump on. All right, Bill, you join us after this part of the conversation. So most of the surgery is still done through a camera, believe it or not. So when we do ACL surgery, the first part you have to get the tendon graft. You have to harvest the graft from that, that patient. So that you still have to make a, a small incision to see the graft and, and get it and harvest it. Mm-hmm. And then once we do um, prepare that on the back table, like we talked about earlier, to customize it for you, for your knee, then we go back to the knee and literally put in a camera. So we make a small portal um, to put the camera into the knee and then we're able to see every corner of the knee now that you never could before. Um, when you were historically, when big incisions were made to open up the knee, you still couldn't see kind of back corners. But now these cameras are just literally millimeters in width, and they project onto a you know high definition screen. We're all looking basically on the screen and and um, doing the surgery on the screen, literally. So that, this is wild. Yeah, I mean, literally, we have we have big screen TVs essentially in the in the <laughs> operating room, and that's what the image is projected onto. So everybody, all everyone in the room can see what's going on. So when we're doing the the preparation uh, in the surgery with the camera, you're basically you'll see the old ACL, which is, which is small. So the, the native ACL on average is 11 millimeters in, in thickness and about 33 millimeters in length. And just to give you a little, you know, what does that mean in length, if you just look at the tip of your finger, um, kind of halfway down the finger – that's approximately 50 millimeters in people to that first little crease in your finger. So less than that. So it's not huge, but it does a huge amount of work inside of our body. Um, So you'll see the old ACL in there, torn. um, And it kind of looks like if you took a a wisp of cotton, a cotton ball, and just literally pulled the two ends apart, it would shred on you and you'd see wisp cottons. That's exactly what the ligament looks like on the inside. It looks like a cotton ball that's been pulled in half and there's wisps of cotton on each end so that's what it looks like so the first thing we have to do is take that out um and we have different instruments that uh, essentially remove the the torn um scarred uh, old tendon and then we have to prepare the area to drill those tunnels like we talked about to put the new graft in and then we fix it in place with these absorbable uh, screws and and implants um to then let your body incorporate it into the knee. But again, the majority of that is just done with a camera. So it's still, say, an outpatient procedure. People come in in the morning, you have the surgery, and you're home by lunch. You go home and then basically, you know, uh, dressing, and you're you're in your house having lunch, that kind of thing. So it's still, in this day and age, and, uh, an outpatient procedure where you go home. So um, it the paradigm has shifted completely to that model where you go home, and literally the next morning... I treat all my patients just like we did in the NFL. The day after an ACL surgery, every every professional athlete was in the stadium working with their strength and conditioning coach and their trainer starting to wake up the quad, wake up the muscle, get the motion going because the faster you wake up the muscles around the knee, the faster and better your recovery is going to be. So if my surgery, I do surgeries, on, for example, I do surgeries every Wednesday. So Wednesday morning surgery, that patient, that athlete is in physical therapy Thursday morning waking up that quad and getting everything. So it's a real kind of get up and go recovery because um, the sooner you start waking everything up, the better your recovery is going to be. So you basically do the surgery of the camera, you go home the same day, and the next day you're in recovery to start the, start the process. Mm.
1: Wow. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. All right, let's go back to uh, the phone to uh, Bill from Manhattan. Bill, you made it back. Welcome back to the family. Yes.
7: Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Good morning gentlemen. Bob, uh, before, uh, I just want to thank you for the, the show that you provide every week. Uh, you give us something that we don't get anywhere else, and you, you just do a wonderful job. Uh, you, you you really should be commended. Uh, thank you very, very much. Very grateful for what you do. Thank you. Um, Dr. I've got multiple issues. I've got uh, problems with my spine, um, uh, spondylosis, stenosis. I've had uh, cervical surgery with uh, laminotomies, laminectomies. Nevertheless, I still have the neck pain and terrible pain in my skull. Um, They want to do another one. Then I've got the problem with my knees. Uh, I've torn the right knee, the uh, MCL, twice, twice. and, um, the, um, uh, and the meniscus three times, left knee uh, once each. I can barely walk anymore. I can't walk more than maybe six or eight blocks, uh, and I've got to go home and lie down because of the pain in my, in my legs. Um, and and then the neck and the head issue of chronic. It just doesn't go away. Um, I've been told that I should perhaps get uh, artificial knee replacement, and I'm apprehensive. Um, do, do, do these knee, you know, artificial knee replacements are, are, are they a, a, an effective, uh, you know? Uh, should I have confidence in 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 the going through with having knee replacements?
2: Sure. sure, Bill. So you know that's well, well relieve
7: yeah. the arthritic pain that nauseates me. It's so bad.
2: No, of course. You know, and both,
7: both knees are just covered with scar tissue, and there's just nothing more they can do surgically All as right. far as carrying the you know the, the knee joint as they are.
2: Well, bell, you, you, you're actually, you know, first of all, thanks for the call. And you're the reason why, you know, Adam and I wanted to team up and really help help people because so many folks just like you have neck and back concerns and also knee and shoulder and joint issues. So, you know, the, right. you're, you're exactly why we have teamed up, and now we take care of everything from head to toe. Right. So I'll you know, let, I've been told yeah.
7: that it's gotten to the point where because of the problems with my knees and how it affects my gait, it affects the damage that I have on the lumbar.
2: Right, and well, all that, that's why I want Adam to touch on that right now, and then we'll get back to your knees uh, about the spine. Right, so, right.
3: yeah, as Arun said, this is exactly why we have neurosurgeons, neurologists, and, uh, and uh, orthopedic surgeons all together to take care of patients because the reality right. is, is, you know, while we split up our specialties, your body functions all as connected. a whole, and it's all connected. Right. Right. And, and, you know, I'd say, first of all, you know, someone like you probably, probably needs an evaluation by a spine surgeon and an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, you know when you have stenosis that can cause pain going to the legs so you really have to tease apart is it coming from your knee is it coming from your lower back and from the nerves in your lower back that are causing right. pain and difficulty walking right. so yes knee problems hip problems set down both legs as well you right, know exactly. because of lumbar issues so that's something that just needs uh, a physician or two who's going to carefully dissect out your symptoms and come up with a good strategy to help you get better uh, there are a variety of different, you know, I, I, I'd probably say I see someone like you 10 times a, a, a week who has multiple issues and you know needs to have a carefully thought out strategy. What I would say is, yes, you know the in terms of the neck, uh, that those are separate issues, and we can certainly talk about that. There are things from injections all the way up to cervical fusion. That can be appropriate uh, yes it's common for neck pain to cause chronic headaches as the stress on the muscles right. go up into the back of the head with the suboccipital right. musculature in terms it's of you know. right and in terms of the lower back you know it, it goes everything from physical therapy to injections to decompression right. uh, and
7: that's what that. I've been doing you know uh, I get just uh, you know um, every Four months, I think, steroid injection. Right. You know, Kellogg, I think
3: it's called. Right, um, Keno-log. Keno-log. So, Keno-log, yep. so, at, and, and usually I'd say after two or three injections, you really, if you're if you're needing more, you usually should talk about your surgical options. So, yeah, so so someone needs to look you from head to toe. Right, but I'll
2: I'll, I'll but, leave it to a room to talk about
3: to the knee, knee, knee replacements, the knee which replacements, can be so the artificial yeah. knee replacement.
2: Sure, absolutely. So okay. the the knees, you know, that's the the end treatment option, obviously. So, you know, most folks, there's other treatment options, such as occasional, if you had a KenoLog injection, like you did for your neck, you could also have that for the knee, which helps a lot with the inflammation. There's a yes. lot of the gel um, injections that we do nowadays that lubricate.
7: Both of those procedures, okay. they, they give relief, but, you know, after a couple of months, it's sure. you know, back to the same of thing. Of course, of At course. All the the uh, gel, like the leaks, you know, um, and uh, and you lose that uh, lubrication. Uh, it's,
2: it's, yeah, it's exactly. Eventually, it, it may um, you know lose its uh, lubricating effect. And then right. you know, there's some stem cell treatments that we're doing also, depending on the level of arthritis that you have. So if if nothing else uh, is left and everything has uh, you know no longer been effective for you. And if right. it's gotten so bad that obviously every step it's, it's a focused pain in the knee, then a knee replacement in this day and age is a, is a very good treatment. You just have to make sure it's for the right reasons, that it's not coming from a different part of your body because the last thing you want to do is get two brand new knees and then next thing you know, you know you're having the similar symptoms that you were dealing with before because it actually is coming from the hip or the lower back. Right. That's why it's right. not as simple of, yeah, sure, just get new knees right. and you're done. My, my um, doctor
7: explained that to me. Yeah. Yep. Right.
2: Yeah, yep. but yeah, and to answer your question, these are all still good, good technologies in this day and age, for sure. All right, Bill, we all got right. to run here.
1: Thank you very much well, for your thank kind you words and very, very your much. call. Really appreciate it. All right, thank you. Oh, by the whoops, <laughs> I hit the button It's just as he was saying. By the way, I'm sorry, Bill. All right, interesting calls. Um, good participation by folks listening uh, to our program this morning, and that's what we like to have uh, happen. Uh, in studio with us are guests from IGEA Brain and Spine, Dr. Adam Lipson and Dr. Arun Rajaram uh, talking with us uh, since we started our program at 6 this Sunday morning. Let's repeat the contact information we mentioned earlier for IGEA Brain and Spine.
3: What right. You- so I have the uh, 1-800 number. We have one office in Manhattan, six offices in New Jersey. The number is 866-467-1770. And the website is www.igea.neuro.com. That's
1: I-G-E-A-N-E-U-R-O.com. Thanks. Interesting areas of uh, discussion that we uh, got into here. Now, um, hopefully we can connect up and have you folks back uh, because there is – as we move more toward this baseball time and hopefully warmer weather in yep. spring – uh, there's some other areas where I want to go in discussion, and I know there's some things that we've talked about as well. So hopefully we'll be able to connect and have you back maybe next month and uh, talk again. Um, I love
3: it. This or, was great. Thanks. We had yep. a
1: very good discussion today, and I do thank you for sharing the information that you did because I think it's very helpful to put some good information out there about the topic of concussion, and obviously any time we bring up anything on ACL or the knee. Mm-hmm. You see what happens. Yeah, literally yep, here. Yep,
2: absolutely. Thank you. Both of you be well. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for having us. Have a great rest of the weekend. You too.
1: Well, after our 8 o'clock update, it is the Sports Edge program. Rick Wolf is going to be in to do that for us. And then after 9 o'clock, I've always said that fortunes change... I guess the best way to phrase it is, how can I say this? Stuff happens. Ed Randall will be by after our 9 o'clock update. He'll be talking baseball. You don't want to miss that discussion. Our thanks to Anthony Gallo for technical direction on our program this Sunday morning. We'll see you next Sunday here on The Fan.